I am a meditation skeptic. There, I've said it. My skepticism is rooted in a belief that I'm just plain high-strung. I have been a nail-biter my entire life, and I'm the kind of person who worries, thinking that there's something I've forgotten to worry about. And so I'm just not buying that meditation would make someone like me calm. That said, I believe I need a more powerful incentive in order to create a new habit. Like if someone told me I would never lose my keys or my phone ever again, that might get me. Or if someone told me that meditation would increase my empathy or temper my temper, that could also work. Lucky me, I found someone who connects the dots between meditation and emotional intelligence. The guy who wrote the book on emotional intelligence, Dan Goldman. Lucky me. The Harvard Business Review called emotional intelligence, which discounts IQ as the sole measure of one's abilities, quote, a revolutionary, paradigm-shattering idea, end quote. That's a tough act to follow, Dan, and shows his article, What Makes a Leader, as one of the 10 must-read articles from its pages. His book, Emotional Intelligence, has sold over 5 million copies and was named one of the most 25 most influential business management books by Time magazine. If Dan Goldman then writes a book called Why We Meditate, I want to know more, and you should want to know more too. Dan is my guest today, lucky us, and we're going to talk about the connection between meditation and emotional intelligence. I'm also interested, as I suspect you are, in understanding what connection there is between meditation, emotional intelligence, and effective leadership, because that's the business you're in. Dan will also talk about other strategies for building EQ besides meditation, just in case the meditation thing does not stick for you. I'm not going to lie. I'm a bit worried about doing right by Dan Goldman. He's a big deal. But we have already established that I'm a worrier. So I'm going to try a little belly breathing, because I read that in the book, and try to get myself calm and clear. And by the way, I was kidding when I said that thing about my keys and the phone. Kind of. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Dan Goldman is an internationally known psychologist who lectures frequently to professional groups, business audiences, and on college campuses. As a science journalist, Goldman reported on the brain and behavioral sciences for the New York Times for many years. And as I mentioned, His book, Emotional Intelligence, was on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half with more than 5 million copies in print worldwide in 40 languages. Apart from his books on emotional intelligence, Dan has also written books on topics including self-deception, creativity, transparency, meditation, social and emotional learning, eco-literacy, and ecological crisis. This is a guy you want to hear from. Dan, thank you for joining us and sharing your insights with nonprofit leaders, the people that I believe work to make the world more fair, more just, and more beautiful. Welcome. Hello, Joan. I'm, I'm so glad to be on your podcast and have a chance to talk to leaders in the nonprofit sector, which I think is invaluable. 
Every nonprofit forms around what I consider a noble purpose. Yes. And I would like to see nonprofits become as effective as they can and leaders of nonprofits becoming as effective as they can. Amen. Here's to that. And that's actually exactly why we're talking today. So before I wrote a book on nonprofit leadership, I did a bunch of research because I wanted to make sure that I had something unique to say. And I felt like I did. And a lot of folks who have read my book on nonprofit leadership would agree. There are no shortage of books on meditation. Dan, what compelled you to write this book? And what did you feel that you and your co-author, Sakni Rinpoche, had to offer readers that was not already out there in a pretty crowded space? Yeah, there are tons of books. And I saw that you had my good friend Dan Harris on. He wrote a wonderful book. He did. A meditation for fidgety skeptics or something like that. That one. And he also wrote 10% Happier. And the truth of the matter is, Dan, I was talking about this with my wife. We, we were like, if you could make me 25% happier, I'd be much happier. <laughs> So I was at a retreat with Sokni Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan teacher of meditation, and I gave a talk for him on the scientific findings on meditation, which I've been tracking for years and years. In fact, when I was a graduate student, I did my dissertation on meditation as an intervention in stress reactivity, helping, you know, how it helps people get calm, stay calm, be triggered less often, be triggered less deeply, right. recover more quickly. And and the data shows that that happens. And so he said, you know, I think it'd be great if we put together the science with what I've been teaching, which is what we did in the book, Why We Meditate. And yes, there are tons of books on meditation, some of which look at the data, some of which look at it in a more objective way, some of which actually look at the best data rather than the so-so data. And I wrote a book called Altered Traits with a friend of mine, Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist at University of Wisconsin. And Richie, as we call him, Richie and I looked at the very best findings in the A-list journals, as they're called. They're the ones that demand the best methodology. And it looks like meditation actually works. There does seem to be a, a growing and compelling sort of set of insights and science and studies that illustrate this. And, but your interest in meditation goes way, way back, right? Well, not way, way back. Way back to your college days. And That's what, right. And tell me about what motivated you to start meditating. And do share the story about the pushback you received about pursuing meditation oh. studies at Harvard. So... I, I first got involved in meditation for reasons like you might be interested, because I was pretty anxious as an undergrad. I was competitive. I wanted to do well, and I worried a lot, and I thought meditation might help me. So when I was a junior in college, I, I took some courses in meditation, and I would say that my initial motivation was to calm down and stay clear. Yeah. However, my motivation changed over the years. As I got more serious about it and started doing retreats, like meditate all day long for days and days, I got kind of interested in the altered states you get into in meditation. You know, I'm a child of the 60s, so altered states was something of interest. <laughs> and then more lately, I've been kind of inspired by the quality of being that I met in people who had been 
I, I would say Olympic level meditators. These are people who have done thousands of hours of meditation over the course of their life. And I thought, that's who I'd like to be when I grow up. Ah, so it, my motivation changed as over the years. But my initial motivation is probably similar to that of, you know, maybe leader of a nonprofit who's right. considering, should I meditate or not? Because the findings are very strong that the initial impact just at the beginning of meditation is three things. One is you get calmer in the ways I described. The other is you get clearer. You're better able to make decisions because you can take in information more deeply, process it, and respond more nimbly, which is, you know, a mark of leadership and outstanding leadership. Totally. The third thing is it makes you more empathic. And I think there are three kinds of empathy. One is cognitive. You understand how people think and the language they use to themselves. The second, which means you can communicate with them very well. The second is emotional empathy, where you feel what the other person feels, which makes your what you say more spot on because you know what the other person is caught up in emotionally. The third, however, is little known, and I think the most important, it's empathic concern. You know how the person thinks and how they feels, but you care about them. And I think the essence of a nonprofit is caring about something for the common good. Right. And ability to be concerned is, is the basis of compassion. It's the basis of wanting to help someone else. And in your quite wonderful TED Talk, it's worrying that the check is not going to get to the landlord in time and the father and the kid are going to end up sleeping on the subway. Right. That's the kind of concern. Right. And in, the, in that conversation that I had at that legal aid organization, it was a solution to a problem, which was mm-hmm. the administrative person kept leaving things on the copy machine. We, we, we scan more things than we copy today. And right, but if you made it, if you made that check come to life as a person who lived in a home, right, that it triggered a kind of empathy that you then were unable to leave the check yeah. on the Xerox machine, right? So that's, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm intrigued about the difference between those three kinds of empathy that the caring one that you just described, and I'm just digressing for a second, is separate sure. from, the, from the other two. Because So I can put myself yeah. in the other person's shoes, which is the second kind of empathy, it seems to me, and not actually care. Have you ever heard of something called marketing? <laughs> Marketer. I once gave a talk to a huge gathering of marketers. And I said, you know, there are three kinds of empathy. The first is cognitive. The second is emotional. And you as marketers are using those two kinds of empathy to manipulate people for your own interests. However, if you have the third kind, if you have empathic concern, if you care about the people you're empathizing with, then you behave very differently. And I think, for example, the leaders that we love have empathic concern. They care about us. We're loyal to them. We're engaged because they can inspire us in a way that moves us, and we feel they have our back. So if you ask people, I've done this around the world, you know, what are the qualities of leaders you've hated and leaders you've loved? This is one of the big, big differentiators. So it leads me to think about something else that I'm hoping our, our listeners are thinking about is that we talk an awful lot about disengaged nonprofit boards, 
right? And there are all kinds of tentacles to the why of that. However, I make this argument that the boards don't actually touch the work often enough. There are not enough people at the table who have the lived experience or adjacent to the lived experience of those people they're Mm. serving. So they actually, they're detached from their ability to care because those people are not made accessible to them either as clients or as fellow board members. Does that make sense? Total sense. I think of my friend Bill George, who used to be CEO of Medtronics. It's a company that makes medical devices. Right. And he he ended up teaching about purpose at Harvard Business School. Mm. And the reason is that he saw firsthand how important it was. What he would do, this is really interesting, John. What he would do is he would take people who had a pacemaker, which they made at Medtronics, who owed their life to the pacemaker, and bring them in to the assembly line where they made pacemakers and talk to the people who were putting together the pacemakers. What you're saying is, you know what? He should have brought the board in too. Yes, that is totally right. Because that gives you the hands-on experience of why what you're doing matters to people's lives. Right, and if you don't have that, how could you care? How could you care, right? It's harder to care exactly. if you're if you're one yeah. step or two steps or three steps removed, you know, from the people, the, right. the cause, the issue. If you have a food pantry and you have a board that is who, who knows what, you know, you have your board because they can raise money or whatever, but they come in once a month and then they work the line feeding people who are homeless. Something like doing something like that, the equivalent of that. In other words, putting your purpose, putting the board in touch with your purpose in a personal way, yeah, I think is extremely powerful. And you know, the data shows people are more engaged, they care more. The leaders who are most inspiring are able to articulate their purpose in a way that resonates with the person they're talking to. Absolutely. I will tell you. You know, it's communicable. Yep. I would tell you a quick, quick story, <laughs> speaking of food pantries. So I worked with a board of an organization that is a, a large AIDS organization. And many of the people who live with HIV and AIDS today are food insecure or without housing. And so they have a Friday night meal. And this was a number of years ago. I couldn't believe how many board members had never been to this Friday night meal. So the first year I did the work with this board, I made them work the line and serve the people. Right. But what I found was that the tray <laughs> or the the, you know, or standing behind the food detached them from the people and they didn't end up engaging with the people. So the next year I said, you know, you're not feeding. You're going to actually sit down and you're going to eat. And your job is to actually meet and hear the story of one of the clients. And then tomorrow at when we start the retreat, I want you to introduce yourself As that client, hello, my name is Tamika. I live on Long Island, and here's my story. And then what we did was we put, we took big post-its, and we put the names of each of the clients on the walls around the room. And every time the board misbehaved, (laughs) every time the board misbehaved, I would say, do do you think, what do you think Tamika would think of this conversation? Would she think that it was a good use of our time? And it was really, Mm. it was, 
it was really, really sticky to use Malcolm Gladwell language, right? So I, this is so spot on and is, it makes such a, I'm excited about this conversation because it's so making a compelling argument for why people with lived experience should be at your board table. It's not just about going to find them and see them and be with them. It's to really be with them. So I put my soapbox away. Now, meditating will improve my emotional intelligence. And with greater emotional intelligence, I will be a better leader. I believe that you believe that statement, right? That meditating will improve my emotional intelligence and with greater emotional intelligence, I will be a better leader. That, by the way, you have me at hello around why meditate. I, the calm thing and the clear thing, you know, we're talking to people who are urgently solving the world's biggest problems. Everything is a priority. They're dealing with traumatized people. I would argue that they themselves are traumatized. But this whole notion that meditation could actually build my emotional intelligence, talk to me, make a case for all of us about that. You know, we talk about people who you say, oh, that person just has really low EQ. Like, and you just sort of write them off that they're just, they're, they're never going to be empathetic. They're not going to have those core EQ qualities. But you, you make a different argument, and I'm going to shut up, and you're going to make the argument. So let's start with what emotional intelligence is. It's the four main parts, the first of which is self-awareness. Meditation is the, you know, essential tool in self-awareness. The second is using that self-awareness to manage yourself better. So you can see, oh, I'm getting anxious again. I'm getting worried. You can track your thoughts in a better way. You can track your feelings more closely. This helps you manage them better. Emotional balance is one of the main competencies. And I should say, you know, I have an online course in the basics of emotional intelligence. There are 12 competencies each rooted in one of the four parts, and we go into each in detail and, and what you can do about it. So, for example, one of the things we have people do is to journal, track your triggers. What, what set you off? What got you worried? What got you angry? Let's help you get familiar with your own mind. That's one of the things we do, but that's part of meditation. So in meditation, one of the big complaints, and this may be, Joan, what, what stopped you, one of the main complaints is people who start meditation say, I can't do this. My mind is nuts. Uh, it's all over the place. Yeah, Dan, well, Dan, Harris, Dan Harris calls it monkey mind. And I actually described it to him. Yeah. And I said, okay, so I started here, and my thoughts started here, and then it went over here, and I, I described all the – by the time it was like it was like taking a like a handkerchief out of a clown's sleeve. Right, 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 right. right, right. And, and, sure. and he said to me, oh, that's really good, Joan. I'm like – Oh, because I was actually able to articulate. Exactly. The reason it's good. Well, yeah, tell now, me. The reason it's good, Joan, is that it's not that your mind is like a monkey because you're meditating. It's because your mind is like a monkey all the time. You just never notice. So in meditation, for the first time, you're noticing what your mind normally does. And you have a tool for doing something about it which is, let's say you're watching your breath, which is a very common way to start meditation. And you notice your mind is going off on seven tracks of worry. And then you remember, oh, I'm supposed to be meditating. 
I'm supposed to be watching my breath. You bring your mind back to your breath. That teaches your mind a new habit, a mental habit. Instead of the familiar rut of following whatever worry, whatever thought, whatever daydream or fantasy comes up, you notice that you're getting caught in that and you bring it back to something neutral and peaceful. And it turns out if you do that regularly, there's what's called a dose response function, which means the more you do it, the stronger the benefits become. And we know from scientific studies that, as I said, the benefits are you get triggered less, you get triggered less deeply or strongly, and you recover more quickly. And that recovery is key. You cannot control what the crisis of the day is and what initial reaction you'll have. That comes spontaneously. What you can do is manage it better by getting over that emotional reaction more quickly. And that's what meditation helps you do. So as I said, the first two parts of meditation are self-awareness and then using that to manage yourself. Third part, empathy, tuning into the other person. Because people don't tell us in words what they're feeling. Usually they tell us in facial expression, tone of voice. And our radar built into our brain locks into that other person. We feel what they feel. We know what's going on. And if we have that third kind of empathy, concern, if we care about them, we're going to do something about it, which gets to the fourth part, which is the relationship abilities, like influencing someone, uh-huh. conflict management, inspiration, which I think for a nonprofit is leader is absolutely crucial. Yes. This is putting people back in touch with why we're doing what we're doing and helping them stay in touch with that. So those are the parts of emotional Yep, I, I love that. and. I do think someone who runs a nonprofit is different from someone who leads a nonprofit. And what you're describing, these, you know, these attributes of emotional intelligence, to me, distinguish between a person who is managing a nonprofit and a person who is leading a nonprofit. I I don't know if you would agree with that sort of binary there. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful distinction because management means you're just doing enough to keep it going. Leadership means you're inspiring people to give their best because they care like you do. That's inspiration. And that's essential in a non It's essential in anything, but it's totally essential in a nonprofit. Well, it's so interesting because I often hear people, and, and less, less over time as I do this work, who say, boy, the nonprofits have so much to learn from the for-profit sector. You know, if only it ran more like a business. And we certainly have seen more than our fair share of examples of lousy businesses. So I'm not exactly sure that the private sector has yeah. it right. But we don't often talk enough about what the nonprofit sector has to teach the private sector about this very issue, about leadership, about EQ, right? What I think it's an, it's an interesting thing that I focus on a lot in the, as I do executive coaching and, and, mm-hmm. and work of that nature is helping people to understand why this part of running a nonprofit is really, really important. You know, I, I just gave a talk to a huge, I can't say the name of the company, but they're in the eyeglass business. And they probably own every store that you've ever gotten glasses from. Anyway, I started by telling them about when I was on the board of an organization called the Seva Foundation, which had a mission of uh, curing blindness, a cure, 
reducing curable blindness in the third world. Right. For example, in Nepal, they'd bring eye surgeons from the West to the field and they'd set up eye clinics and they do cataract surgery because it turns out at high altitudes, you get cataracts much more quickly. It's a big problem. And, you know, I found the work very inspiring, but I thought really they're in the vision business. They're helping people see better. And I wanted to help them see what purpose is really implicit in what they're doing. And I think more and more businesses are trying to find their purpose. Yes. Other beyond just making money for shareholders. What are you really about? What are you doing for humanity? What are you doing for the world? What, what is your role and what's your purpose? And it's interesting that purpose has kind of is taking off among the for-profit sector. It's always been there in the nonprofit sector, don't yep. you think? Yes, it has to be. It actually has to be. The clarity of purpose, really understanding your why, right? In order to motivate people, in order to compel people, in order to educate people about the nature of the issue, in order to invite people to come closer and learn more and do more for your, sure. for your organization, purpose has to be central, right? It, it, absolutely central. It's not just, you know, you'll see a lot of lawyers are drawn towards board service. And, you know, I've dealt with a lot of boards that are filled with lawyers. And what they want to do is make the case. They want all the facts, right? They're lawyers. They were trained that way, right? But if you don't actually, I, I often use the Quaker metaphor that people have a light inside them, right? You know, in other languages, in other faiths, it's soul or whatever it might be. But I would say your job as an executive director is to cause that flame to get brighter, right? And that oftentimes our interactions with boards and volunteers are about the doing. And when it's about the, just about the doing, the flame actually diminishes. And that's when you lose mm. engagement, you lose funding, right? So it is all sure. about purpose. And that is e equally true, Dan, even in associations, right? 501c6s. So I have worked with the Association of Interior Design, right? And they are trying to figure out how to get more members. And their chapters are in the business of accumulating members. And I was like, no, that's not the business you need to be in. You need to be in, mm. the, in the business of being sort of evangelists for interior design. And I had folks stand up and tell me about some, some kind of design they did and why it mattered to them. And I, I actually didn't really know where I was going to take the speech, but like I had people tearing up telling their stories about why interior design matters. Sure. So it's so, so interesting. Exactly. By the way, I wouldn't glorify the for-profit sector because they have the same problem. You know, disengagement is a huge, huge problem throughout the world in the right. for-profit sector, businesses of all kinds. And I think it has to do with people getting out of touch with the purpose of what they're doing. What makes work meaningful? Right. I mean, so there's a couple of things. One is, it, it is, this conversation is so important as it relates to Gen Z folks who are entering the workplace because they expect mm. purpose. They're expecting it, right? And right. so 
the nonprofit sector is seeing more Gen Z employees rather than fewer of them. They're disruptive in what I would consider to be could be a very healthy way. Some nonprofit leaders don't agree with me, but I think <laughs> it is. And more and more Gen Z folks are going to for-profit interviews and saying, tell me about your values. What do you value? And how right. do you bring those values to life? Right? I mean, we just had a global pandemic and lost a million people in a, in a veritable heartbeat. If meaning and purpose don't matter today, I don't know. I actually don't know what does. Well, I would say there's another thing, another major factor in younger people caring more about purpose, climate warming. Yes. You know, the forecast, the drumbeat is over, if you're a Gen Z, over the course of your life, it's going to be hellish. Yes. What, what are anybody doing about it? This is why younger people are angry at older people, because they've left them with this older, older generations, left younger people with this predicament and don't seem to care. Right. don't seem to care enough. Exactly. And this is, uh, right? And so people say Gen Z folks are disruptive. Well, actually, you know, they're, they're working in the service of trying to solve problems that systems and institutions and people who are older That's than right. them actually created and are leaving behind for them. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So we're talking with Dan Goleman. Dan Goleman is an internationally known psychologist. His book, Emotional Intelligence, is, it's the book. And he is Mr. Emotional Intelligence. He has written a book that I read and enjoyed very much, along with his co-author, Sakni Rinpoche, called Why We Meditate the Science and Practice of Clarity and Compassion. And by the way, if you're a nonprofit leader, and of course you are because you're listening, clarity and compassion should be kind of at the top of your list. We just have a few more minutes, Dan, and I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about these courses, how you're helping folks develop EQ through your courses. I, I certainly want to send mm. listeners your way to learn more about them, and I understand mm. you've invested a ton mm. of time and effort into designing this program. So I'm hoping you'll just tell us a little bit, bit about the program. Sure. Well... Well, you know, since I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, consulting in emotional intelligence has become a mini industry. And I can't vouch for the quality of what people are saying or doing as consultants because I don't even know them. So I thought it was time that I put together a kind of definitive online program that anybody could get involved in that will teach you the basics of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, using that for self-management, empathy putting that together and how you are in your relationships as a leader. Uh, it's called the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence Online Program. You can get it at Key Step Media. I assume you have show notes. Maybe you can put we it do. in show notes. We do, and I love the title. Yes. Uh, the, the title of your course is very catchy, Dan. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. It's... <laughs> We wanted to be clear what it was. Yes. So that that program is uh, takes you through all of the competencies of emotional intelligence that research has shown 
are characteristic of outstanding leaders, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit or government, whatever it may be. And these are the abilities, things like empathy, things like inspiring people that leaders need to know today. And so the course is, I think it's uh, maybe 24 weeks in total, but very briefly, every day you get something new, and we were getting very good feedback from it. It's fantastic. media if you want to check it out. That's yeah. fantastic. And, and uh, is it self-guided? So if I wanted to take it, I could take it independently. So is it a, is it a self-guided kind of course? You can go. There's, there are group activities if you want to do that, or you can just do it on your own in your own time. Fantastic. That's why it's nice that it's online. That's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, thank you. So... Essentially, this is a go-to place if you want to hone your emotional intelligence skills. We started out by talking about meditation. We integrate meditation with the course, mindfulness particularly. Many leaders in all sectors now, or many people, are getting involved in meditation because they find it helps them in what they're doing. And that's what we want to do. I'm, I'm hoping that people will benefit from it. That's my motivation. It's, it sounds so, so valuable. Before we leave, I, I hear you're working on yet another book. Tell us about that. Oh, this comes out in January. We brought together 25 years of research on emotional intelligence. My co-author, Carrie Chernus, who's at Rutgers, uh, he and I were co-directors of a consortium for research on emotional intelligence in organizations. And we're harvesting all of that research and beyond to, sh to make the case that this really helps and increases engagement. People are more likely to stay. People will give their best efforts. People have more fun at work. It has many, many benefits. And we thought it was time to make the case. We had a lot of, I think, well, justified criticism at the beginning when I first introduced the concept because there wasn't data to support it. Now there's tons of data. We brought it together. And we also, by the way, talk about not just meditation, but how important purpose is yeah. in leadership. Fantastic. So maybe you'll come back and we can talk about that book when it comes out. I would love that. Well, I would love it too. All Let's right. do it. It's a date. Before we, I'll, I'll give you the last word. You're talking to a posse full of folks who are trying to mm. repair the world in ways large and small. Sure. Advice or last words for them from Dan Goldman? Well, I, I would say think about why you care about what you're doing and how you might spread that caring to the people you work with. And we'll leave it right there. Dan Goldman, this has been really a pleasure. I've actually so enjoyed the conversation and I am absolutely convinced that this is going to be something that folks are going to listen to a couple of times. Please check out Dan's online course. It's key. Give me the URL again. Oh, keystepmedia.com. Keystepmedia.com or just Google Dan Goldman's fantastic course on emotional intelligence. And I bet he comes up first.
Dan, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so grateful for your time and for all the good work you do. And for those of you who are listening, thank you for the work you do every day. Please stay safe, take good care of yourself, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.